Back to Luke, right? So, in Luke, if you've been following with us, or if you're new or just coming back in, uh, we have seen so far in Luke, at the very beginning, these prophecies, these proclamations from the angels about the Messiah King to come. The prophets of old have been speaking about this, and now they're talking very soon, very soon. And we just saw last week in our passage that Jesus, the Messiah, he's bringing new. He's bringing a new age, a new covenant, and the old has passed away. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, has passed away. And we saw that people resist them, people oppose them. Immediately, within the context, it's the Pharisees that resist them. Can you hear me now? <laughs> Is it on? So I'm on right now, it says. Good? Sorry about that. So yeah, coming back, we saw Jesus the Messiah King coming. He's on the he's on the scene now. And people are resisting him. And then in our passage today, we see there's a, a large following that's after him. You see him with the apostles. You see him with these different disciples. It's not surprising, as we've seen throughout the Luke so far, that the word about him being spread. His teaching is unparalleled. He's literally healing people. And so a lot of people come to him. Like, no surprise there. And he has this large crowd. He chooses the 12 apostles. He even ministers to the people. And then what does he do with this large crowd? He divides them. He separates them. He tells them what it means to follow him, what it costs. He calls for obedience and allegiance. We'll see that here. So this passage, as we're coming here today, as AJ was kind of sharing, there's a lot of stuff going on in our world, a lot of things um, that we might get uh, caught up in or just not as focused as we are on life on what we are about. And so today is kind of a, a passage that allows us to evaluate ourselves. Who we are, what are we about, what are we pursuing in this life, what is our ultimate goal, what is it? And that's what Jesus is getting here. He divides genuine followers who are seeking to obey him, to follow him. He divides them from those who are present within this group, but their full allegiance isn't to Jesus. They're there, but they're not really following him. They're there for the miracles, for the, the signs that he's doing. And so this morning, I pray that as we see Jesus divide this group, that the Spirit of God will encourage us believers, will encourage us with the blessings that we hear here. And I pray that as we, as we listen to this, that those of us who are complacent, who have been slowly falling away, pursuing things of the world, will be convicted and challenged by what Jesus says here. And I pray for those who, who do not believe that they that you repent, that you return to Christ, and you see his, his woes, his pronouncements of judgment. So as we look at today, um, continually ask the, ask the question to yourself, as for me as well, who am I following? Who am I following? Am I following the Messiah King who demands obedience? Who is, who, who is my allegiance to him? who says clearly in this passage, it comes with a cost. There will be sacrifice. Or are we following the God of money, the God of security, the God of people's acceptance, the God uh, of the road of little resistance? 
and what the world says is successful. And so as we work through this, ask ourselves, who are you following? So if you haven't yet, open up your Bible to Luke chapter 6. If you do not have your Bible or your phone, uh, there's a Bible right in front of you in the pew. And if you use that Bible, it'll be on page 809. And so going to verse 12, in this first section, we see that within this large group that's following Jesus, he chooses 12. Out of this large group that have clearly different commitment levels, have different allegiances to Jesus, he chooses 12. The apostles, he commissions them. So here we go. Verse 12, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose for them the twelve, whom he named apostles. And then the list. And Aaron does a great job with names, as we saw with uh, Jesus' um, descendants there, or I should say his ancestors. And so I'm going to leave it at that. But what we see here is that Jesus spends all night in prayer. Jesus is the example of of following. He is dependent, and he's following and obeys the will of the Father, God the Father. That's who he's communing with. We see the example of, of, of following in Christ with God the Father. We see this clearly in the, in the New Testament as well, where the, the apostles or the disciples have to make a large decision. They pray. And with these apostles, he chooses from the disciples. So a little background. In the in this culture, the Greek, the Jewish culture that's going on in the first century here, it is common. It was very common for uh, a prominent rabbi, prominent philosopher, prominent teacher to have people following him, going from town to town. It was, it was common. So this isn't unusual, especially not unusual with Jesus, who, like I said, his teaching was like no one else. He was literally performing miracle after miracle after miracle. So it's no surprise that so many people are following him. So he has uh, these 12 that he takes up from this group. And I want to sit on this just for a couple of minutes because I think it's important. And he calls them apostle. Now, in the general sense, an apostle means a, a messenger or like a commissioned representative. It's a, a general term, uh, an apostle. But Jesus here spe- specifies specifically the apostles, the 12 apostles. It's a specific office, if you will, of apostles. They're uniquely direct, uh, chosen by Jesus. We see in Acts chapter 1 that they needed to be a witness of the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. We see they have authority from Christ. There's 12 of them. What does that remind you of, that number 12? The 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is doing that very intentionally. Remember, just this last passage, Jesus is saying the old is done. The old is passing away. The, the, specifically, the Mosaic Covenant is passing away, and the new is here. The new age of the Messiah is here. Jesus begins his ministry 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. An echo of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. They failed miserably. Jesus walks out of the wilderness victorious. So here's Jesus, the one who's come, the one who's here. And now he's, he's now he has 12 apostles, his 12 leaders. No doubt, those listening hear the echo of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the Messiah is starting something new. And I say new, it's not novel because the old prophets, and way back when, Genesis 3, this was spoken about, that this was coming. It was foreshadowed up. And so Jesus is here. There's continuity with the Old Testament, and there's discontinuity. 
Because this Messiah King is doing something new. He's gathered his people, the church, follow Jews like the Apostle Paul and the, the other apostles, and also Gentiles like me, like most of, of us today. And what is fun, and I say that, is that these 12 is a mixed bag. Just a mixed bag. Listen to this. You've got Peter, who, who, who steps before he looks. You've got family. Peter and Andrew, brothers. James and John, brothers. James and John are also cousins of Jesus. You've got co-workers, James and John, Peter and Andrew. They're fishermen. They work together. And you've got Thomas, who's known for what? Doubting. What kind of reputation is that that you're known for as the doubter? You've got Thomas. And then, which you cannot make up, you've got Matthew, who's Levi, which we saw is a tax collector. He literally, in most people's eyes, betrayed his people for the government and taken taxes from them. You've got him, and you've got Simon the Zealot. And what that means is the Zealot is that he literally was a revolutionary that absolutely despised the Roman government. In fact, some of them are terrorists and kidnappers. So Jesus chose a man who betrayed his people for the government, and he chose a guy who hates the government, and some are terrorists, and put them in the same group. Have fun, he says. But that's what we see. It's a mixed group. Not only that, and you've got Judas, who literally was a part of the murder of, of Jesus by betraying him. What a mixed day. What a mess, almost. And does that not sound like our church family in other churches? you got blood thin. You've got those who work together. You've got those with different views on topics like politics within orthodoxy. There are some of us who may not yet be trusting in Christ, who's rebelling against God. There are some of us who talk first and apologize later. And there are some of us who struggle with doubt. But what unites them is the lordship of Christ. And that's what the apostles in Ephesians 4, that's what we're called to as well, faith in Christ. Growing in Christ, what unites us. What a mixed bag they are, what a mixed bag we are. I just think that's a lot of fun. Who does that? Pro-government, anti-government, let's put them together and see what happens. And it's Jesus that unites them. All right, moving on. I'm sorry. But you've got these 12 apostles, and then you've got these other groups in the next section. So look at verse 17. And he came down with them, being the apostles, and stood on the level place. With a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. So he comes to a little place, uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. This is that right here. This is Luke's account. Uh, the Sermon on the Plateau, if you will, but the Sermon on the Mount. Same thing that's recorded in Matthew is being recorded here from Luke's perspective. And we see three groups. Four, if you include the Pharisees that opposed them that we saw last section. But we see the apostles, which we just talked about. We see a great crowd of his disciples is also there. And the apostles were chosen, chosen from this group. They all have different levels of commitment and understanding. But what joins them is that Jesus is their teacher, and they're following him. But as I mentioned, within that group, there's some genuine believers that will, will continue following Christ, and there's some that will fall away, that will desert him. This is especially when Jesus teaches hard sayings. John 6, I keep on coming back to that, if, if you remember. Jesus starts saying some hard things, and they're like, we're out of here. Jesus even turns to the apostles. You guys leave him too? And that's when Peter says, nope, you're the one that has the truth. Jesus said some hard things, and people turn away. John mentions this a ton. 
that some follow just for signs and miracles, but then they follow when Jesus starts talking hard. And then the third group, so you've got the apostles, you've got the great crowd of disciples, and then you've got a third group, a multitude of people from Judea and from a distant land, Tyre and Sidon. And uh, interesting with Tyre and Sidon is that it's northwest of Galilee. Uh, it would be modern-day Lebanon, if you're familiar with the geography of the Middle East. Uh, they're seaports. They have incredible immorality. And so we see Jesus' appeal brought in all types of people. They're traveling distances to get to this guy. So that's the setup here. These different groups. It's a big, major public event. Some commentators said there's possibly thousands of people there. There's a good chance that's why Jesus went on to a, a mount in order to, to speak to all. But this is a, a major event. Some are coming to hear his teaching. Some are coming to be healed. Some are coming with a troubled uh, spirit word to be cured. And Jesus ministers to them. And then he teaches. He's got this great crowd, the apostles, a crowd of disciples, a crowd that came from far away. He had them. And then he begins to speak some really hard things. And this becomes clear, and he uses these blessings and these woes. And these blessings and woes, as we jump into these, they're not arbitrary. Listen to Jeremiah 17. Thus says the Lord, curse is the man, or if you will, woe is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not, be, and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And so this, this setup of blessing walls is not new. And this, uh, many would argue that Jesus derives a lot from right here, this passage in Jeremiah, that this is uh, a template that Jesus uses. But this is what I want us to see. The four blessings that we see here all describe one type of person. It's the person who trusts and depends on and follows Christ, who obeys Christ. And then the four woes that follow, that you can see are opposites of the blessings, that they all describe the same person. The person that trusts in man, trusts in themselves, rely on themselves, and follow other gods, if you will, false gods, rather than Christ. So as we go through these, continue to ask the questions, which one am I? Who am I following? Which group describes me more? So here we go. Verse 20, he says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So you got this list of blessings, what are referred to as Beatitudes. They encourage followers of Christ that's in this group that are here today to continue. There's blessing, there's hope, continue. It's an exhortation to continue. And this blessing, it, it refers to uh, an inner happiness at good fortune from God's hand. An inner happiness or joy at good fortune from God's hand. It is not the prosperity gospel, not at all. 
It's a promise of blessing. Now that continues and extends into the future. It's a blessing of a current attitude toward God and life, as well as an eschatological hope or a future hope. But don't miss this as we go through these. From these four, there's the assumption from Jesus that there is a cause and there is sacrifice going on with these people, with the followers of Christ. And it's those who follow Christ who are blessed. So here we go. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So if if you were here earlier this month, we looked at Luke chapter 4, and that's when Jesus goes to the the synagogue in Nazareth. That's when he pretty much kickstarts his ministry, and he quotes from Isaiah um, I forget what chapter is. We quote from Isaiah, uh, the, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to, to proclaim good news for, and that whole passage. That's what he starts his sermon or his ministry with. And we talked about that last week, that many people misinterpret that passage as if Jesus came literally and primarily to help literally the poor, to help the literally captive. Not saying that that's not one of his purposes, but that was not his primary purpose. And that was very clear in the passage. The point that we saw there was that the poor, the oppressed, the captive that he listed there was imagery for spiritual reality. And that's what's going on here as well. Jesus isn't saying literally the poor are blessed just because they're poor economically. That's not what he's saying. It's a spiritual imagery for those that see their need for Christ and respond to him. The imagery is perfect because often those who are physically needy are the ones who recognize how needy they are spiritually as well and who respond and follow and obey Christ. So the imagery he uses is perfect. It's a, it's a great picture. As one pastor explains it, Christ promises those to be happy who, chastened and subdued by afflictions, <coughs> submit themselves fully to God and with inward humility betake themselves to him for protection. Those who know their need and rely on Christ. Um, I like the, the rendering of one commentator said this. Follow with this. He says, Blessed are you who are materially poor, who nonetheless look to God and his promise, for the kingdom of God is yours. When it says, for the kingdom of God is yours, Jesus is pointing his followers who are afflicted, who are struggling. He points them to the future to the promise of eternal life that they have now and what they're looking forward to fully consummated in the future. He pours courage into them that if you have little wealth because of obedience to Christ, you're blessed and there's blessing that's coming. So asking ourselves, are you trusting in God? Are you relying on God and obeying him even if it means financial cost and sacrifice? Jesus says that you are blessed. Yours is the kingdom of God. Next blessing. Blessed, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Uh, hunger. Who's hungry right now? Who can, yep, I must be blessed because I'm hungry right now. Who's going? Well, I'm hungry. Moving on. So obviously it's a lack of something, right? A lack of food. They're hungry. Blessed are you who are hungry. And so immediately it's those who are, who, who are afflicted, who are hungry, do not have their needs met because of Christ. But it's also a further picture. Those who are lacking other things, possibly from a sacrifice of their own, and they lack. Let me give an example. I think when I read this, I thought immediately of our dreams. 
our passions, our hobbies, things we enjoy. We're hungry for them. But we give them up, some of them, in order to fill the responsibilities God has given us as mothers, fathers, uh, as followers of Christ, and whatever that looks like, in obedience to his commands. We give it up now to obey Christ. And Jesus says, it won't last forever. You shall be satisfied. You will be satisfied. In this picture of satisfaction, this picture of being satisfied is often tied to, in Scripture, to this having a feast with God. Having a feast with God. Let me give an example. In Isaiah, he writes this in 20, Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. The satisfaction that Jesus says is yours, that you give up now, you sacrifice now, you put off now, but you will be satisfied in the future. It's a picture of having a seat at God's table. You have a seat at God's dining table. He says, it is yours. After Moses received the Mosaic Covenant at Mount Sinai, he took with them Aaron, his sons, seventy elders, and they went to the mountain. You know what they did? They ate and drank in the presence of God. They ate and drank. This idea of communion. And then in the end, the marriage supper of the Lamb, in Revelation 19, it's read, uh, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This communion with God, you sacrifice now, but you shall be satisfied. It is coming. It is coming. You will be satisfied. So as a follower of Christ, if you're lacking, if you've sacrificed essential and inessential things, you will be satisfied in the end. The next blessing says, blessed are, are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And in the Old Testament, this picture of someone weeping is often tied to someone who's suffering because they're, they're, they're enduring because they identify with God. They're suffering because they identify with God. Someone who's going through a lot of hardship, they're weeping. But in the midst, they continue to look to God. We can see this very often in the Psalms, right? I thought of Psalm uh, 42. This is from the sons of Korah. They write, My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go to the throng and lead in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down on my soul? Or why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In the midst of hardship, they look to God, they rely on God. Jesus says, those who weep now, blessed are you, because you will laugh. And this idea of laugh isn't like a a superficial kind of uh, just for kicks and giggles type of laugh. This is joy, that everything's made right. Again, in Revelation, we see this. Revelation 21. Talk about the future. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You'll be blessed. If you're weeping now, but the hard times rely on God, you will be blessed. And the last blessing. This one may come as a surprise, but Jesus says, Blessed are you with people, they, when they hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So we see this growing and progressive hostility. One, they hate you. In the Old Testament, it's very clear, it's very common for opposition to God's people. Very common in the Old Testament. We see it everywhere. As one uh, pastor says, for a disciple to align with Jesus was to take a public and potentially offensive stand that would produce reaction, even hatred. So you're hated, then you're excluded, and at that time, it meant a social ostracism. People avoid you. They refuse to do business with you. They refuse to even eat with you, to associate with you. Sometimes, potentially, that meant being kicked out of the synagogue for some time, which is huge because the synagogue was the center of a lot of things, like the economy, socially. There's a lot of big deal. They hate you. They exclude you. They revile you. They insult, slander, verbally attack you. And then it says they spurn your name as evil. Literally, they cast your name out as evil. Kind of a, a summary of, of what's going on here. It's a, a picture of total rejection. And Jesus says, blessed are you when people do this to you. And the one important qualifier is when he says, on the account of the Son of Man. So blessed are you when people do this and hate you on account of Christ, on account of Jesus and his word. It is no blessing. I'm reminded by Jesus, uh, by Casey. She's not in here, my wife, so that's good. It's no blessing to be hated by people because you're a jerk. Peter says this very clear in 1 Peter 2.20. You got what's coming to you, basically. That's no blessing, but it's because on account of Christ. If you're living under and proclaiming the lordship of Christ in all of life, people respond by hating you. They will exclude you. They'll revile you. They'll spurn you. If they're doing that, you're on the right track. In fact, we saw that's what they did to John the Baptist. That's what they did to Jesus. That's what they did to the Apostle Paul, uh, James, Peter, on and on and on. The Old Testament prophets, that's what they did. They hated them. In fact, 11 of the 12 apostles were executed. One was exiled. We will be hated when we tell the world that they are evil and wrong to murder babies by abortion. They will hate us when we hold that marriage between one man and one woman and that so-called gay marriage is an offense to the one who gave them life. They will hate us when we tell them that transgenderism is rebellion against the living God who made them male or female. They will hate us when we preach that we are all sinners. That if we did get fairness and justice, we'd all go to hell. And they will equally hate us when we share the hope and the good life and the good the, the eternal life, the good news of eternal life in Christ, through faith in Christ. They'll hate us because it presupposes their depraved state that we all. They will hate us when we do not allow them to hijack Jesus into this lovey-dovey figure that just says anything goes as long as we're all happy. They'll hate us when we say, that is not Jesus, not even close. They'll hate us when we declare that it's God's design for the husband to lead and the wife to submit within the household. They'll hate us as we refuse to bow down to the God of the state, the LGBTQ God, any other gods they demand that we worship, 
or we face their wrath in the sense of shame and guilt and being canceled and all that. They'll hate us. They will hate and revile and exclude and scorn them as evil. But Jesus says, you are blessed because they do that on account of my name. And notice that this, this screams that a lack of conflict does not mean faithfulness. In fact, there will be conflict. There will be. And Jesus says, he finished up there, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven for so their fathers did to the prophets. And so why can we rejoice? Not because of the suffering in and of itself, but because of what it means. It means there's reward in heaven. And this doesn't mean there's a, God's holding a carrot out for us. That's not what he's saying. But it's saying that God, he sees. He sees what's going on. And he cares and he will bless you. Uh, there's reward in heaven. Not now. Probably not now. You'll be scorned. You may be hated till you die, he says. You may be in prison. You may, in fact, be executed like so many of our brothers and sisters of Christ in all over the world today. That may happen to you. But your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice. And he says there, you can also rejoice, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Uh, Hall of Fame for football. Anyone gone there? Where's that? Ohio, right? Hebrews 11, chapter 11, a lot of people call it the Hall of Faith or the Hall of Fame because we see this incredible list of men and women who have just did uh, incredible things, amazing things for God. They had great, big faith. People like Abraham, Moses, David, Samuel, these people who just did so much. And Jesus is saying here, when you obey Christ, when you follow Christ and people hate you, your name's included with them. They did this to the prophets as well. You're included with them. People like Abraham Moses. I think of all the bold-hearted men and women in church history whose names we still repeat today because of what they did, uh, of their following of Jesus Christ. People like Martin Luther, Athanasius, John Calvin, Augustine, Charles Spurgeon, George Miller, Hudson Taylor, Jonathan Edwards, Ambrose, Mary Magdalene, Tertullian, Jim Elliott, Polycarp, William Carey, John Wycliffe, John Chrysostom, William Tyndale, and so many more. Men and women we still know because they had an incredible impact for Christ. They stood up. They were opposed, almost all of them. Yet they obeyed and followed Christ. And when we choose to follow Christ, instead of submitting to the resistance, Jesus says we are just like them. One pastor in church history who was uh, opposed a lot, he was actually kicked out of his own church for a few years and then came back in. He wrote this about this, this blessing from Christ. He said, the disciples of Christ have great need of this instruction. And the more hard and disagreeable it is for the flesh to admit it, the more earnestly ought we make it the subject of our meditation. We cannot be Christ followers on any other condition than to have the greater part of the world rising in hostility against us and pursuing us even to death. The state of the matter is this. Satan, the prince of the world, will never cease to fill his followers with rage, to carry out hostilities against the members of Christ. Above all, it is, as we may say, the ordinary lot of Christians to be hated by the majority of men. For the flesh cannot endure the doctrine of the gospel. None can endure to have their vices reproved. Paul said the same thing. 
2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life of Christ will be persecuted. It's not a question. You will be persecuted, whatever degree that is. Jesus promised the same thing. You will be hated for my name's sake. So, if you don't have, if you do not this morning have a bad reputation, or are disliked, or even hated by someone or some group, you're probably not following Christ like you think you are. And so also notice with these blessings, faithfulness in following Christ not only may mean, but probably means some degree of neediness, being unsatisfied, not pursuing all your dreams and passions and hobbies, going through hard times, grieving, lost, and being hated and disliked. Jesus is saying, that's a blessing. When you're following Christ and these things are happening, that's still a blessing. So as we, as we seek to obey Christ in every area of life, all of Christ for all of life, you may have little money and possessions, but yours is the kingdom of God. You may give up satisfying all your desires and passions and dreams and, and hobbies now, but you will be satisfied in the future. You may endure much loss, disappointment, hardship now, but you will laugh and have joy, Jesus says. And you will experience rejection, be hated and slander now, but great is your reward, he says. And so this group that's described the blessings, they trust Christ. They're following Christ. They've counted the cost. They're sacrificing. They're being obedient to Jesus Christ, and they're following him. Now let's move to the next group. This one will go a little quicker if you look at your time. Continue to ask, which group describes me more? And you see uh, there's the four blessings, and now it's the four woes. And... Uh, if you ever read the Old Testament, a lot of times in the prophets, definitely in Isaiah, uh, many other ones, you'll hear a lot of woes upon different nations like Egypt, uh, a bunch of them that's all around, different peoples even. you hear a lot of woe to you, Egypt. Woe to you, Assyria. Woe to you, Babylon. you see that all throughout the prophets. It's a pronouncement of judgment. It's an expression of a warning of danger that this is what's coming. Jesus will use it. We'll see. He, he pronounces woes upon the Pharisees. It's a warning. And just like the four Beatitudes, the four blessings describe the type of person, these four woes describe the person that's in the group of the followers that's present, but it's not actually following Christ. And these woes accomplish two things. Number one, for those who do not follow Christ, it's a warning about their sin and what it will lead to. It's a call for repentance. It's also another uh, thing that these woes accomplish is for genuine followers of Christ who may be being seduced by the world in these different sinful pursuits, these worldly pursuits, it's a call for repentance, to turn back to Christ. As one pastor says, these woes not only tend to strike terror into the ungodly, but to arouse believers that they may not be lulled to sleep by the vain and deceitful allurements of the world. We know how prone men are to be intoxicated by prosperity or ensnared by flattery. And on this account of the children, on this account, the children of God often envy the lost when they see everything go on prosperous, I can't even say that word, going well and smoothly with them. So here they are, these warnings, these woes. First one, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. 
And just like the poor, the rich isn't saying, hey, just because you're rich, you have a lot of money, woe to you. That's not what he's saying. It's a generalization, just like the, the poor is a, an imagery of a spirituality. The rich is an imagery of those uh, who have wealth and are so focused on this life and their positions for no concern for God's commands or for fellow people. That's what this is referring to. And Jesus says, Woe to you, for you have received your consolation. And this strikes fear. This word for consolation, it's a technical commercial term at that time, meaning it's the signing or accepting the receipt for full payment. So what is Jesus saying? Hey, woe to you, rich, because that's all you're going to get. You've got it. There you go. That's all you're going to get. You're not going to be blessed. You're not going to get anything from God when the time comes. Woe to you who are rich, who are, don't care about God's commands, who don't care about the other people around you who are needy. Woe to you, because that's all you're going to get. It's your loser trophy. In the light of eternity, that's the loser trophy. We see this with Lazarus and the rich man, if you remember that parable. You've got this rich man who's eating, has a lot of food. You've got Lazarus who's on the outside. Lazarus dies, the rich man dies, and the, it's reversed in the end, where it's the rich man crying out for Lazarus. So if one of your highest priorities in life right now is to increase your money above what is needed and to get things, if your time and your thoughts are consumed about getting more, having enough money to feel secure, just getting the next thing, if you've been so much more focused on your money rather than those God has not given so much, woe to you because you have received your consolation. The second woe, he says, woe to you who are full now for you shall be hungry. You're full now. Those that, that don't put anything off, that satisfy everything. And I put it in terms of uh, their hobbies, their dreams, their possessions. No desire goes unfulfilled. That's what they're pursuing. It's just fulfilling all my dreams, all my desires, what I want, these hobbies, I do them all. Without thinking of others or what God commands to do with their time and their money. They have it all. They follow the God of money, the God of security, rather than following God, Jesus the Lord. And Jesus says, you have that now. You're full now, but you will be hungry. You're full now, but you will laugh when the time comes. The money won't last forever. The, the house won't last forever. The things you're pursuing won't last forever. So if you schedule your time, if you plan your money and build your life around satisfying all your desires and dreams and passions without thinking about them in light of God's commands, if you've never pushed off some, some kind of satisfaction of a desire or a fulfillment of dreams or desires, if you've resolved, if you haven't resolved to never pursue certain things for the sake of your responsibilities as a mother, father, as a follower of Christ, woe to you. Because you seek satisfaction in this life, but you will not be satisfied in the next. Jesus then says, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And this laugh is not the same as the earlier laugh of the blessing. Where in the blessing, the laugh was joy. This laugh is a laughter of, of haughtiness, of being self-independent. That I don't need God. I don't need other people. 
is a, a boastful, even a condescending laugh we see within this context. He says, Woe to you who laugh now, we shall mourn and weep. My dad used to say, growing up, uh, he must have said often, that read is really stuck with me. That the worst feeling that you ever will feel is regret. Because you can't do anything about it. You just regret what's been done. She says, Woe to you laugh now, for you will mourn and weep, and just the regret. You will regret it. So if your ultimate pursuit is to be independent, not need anyone to be secure with your money possessions, without any kind of thought of God's commands and his ways, if you laugh and feel that you have it all because your barns are full, your bank account is sitting well, you look toward to the future of a great retirement, and you make even to look down on those who are struggling because you just focus on yourself, woe to you, for you will weep and mourn in the future. And then the last woe, Jesus says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So Jesus literally says, Woe to you when everyone speaks so good of you, that you speak so well of you. This seems like just the opposite of what we, we naturally think. He says, For the, the Israelites, the fathers did to the false prophets. They commended these false prophets. They accepted them. So if we're so concerned about what others think, and for them to like us, he compares us, Jesus does, to false teachers. Many in the Old Testament, they sought out false prophets to hear a message that they want to hear, but which wasn't the truth. Seeking acceptance and popularity rather than faithfulness is the beginning of the end of your faithfulness and your effectiveness in God's mission. And I really believe this. <coughs> If we are so concerned about what unbelievers think of us, that we start to dull down the truth, we start to be a little more restricted, we don't condemn evil as outright as what it is, that we don't hold up God's law to the law so that it drives it to the cross, we might as well be dead. I'd rather be dead than be doing that and just kind of dulling things out, dulling the truth out. So if all your neighbors in your community speaks well of you, and there's no one that talks bad about you on account of Christ. Woe to you, because you probably are not following the being Christ that you should. And look at these woes as we're coming to the end here. Notice this. Just because you have a lot of money and possessions does not mean that God has blessed you. It does not mean that God has approved of your decisions. If you have accomplished all of your dreams and have satisfied all these things that you wanted to do in life, these different passions and desires, you pursued all your hobbies, that does not mean that God is with you and that you're blessed. It might mean the exact opposite. If you feel very independent, as if you don't need anyone, that you've got everything under control, don't think that God has blessed you. It may be to the contrary. And if your neighbors or community all speak well of you, do not think that means you've been faithful. There's a good chance it might have been the exact opposite. So there it is. Jesus begins. His, his mission is the Messiah. This is right at the beginning. And he divides people. Those who trust in God. Those who follow Christ. Who obey him. And then those who are in the group of followers. But they don't trust in God. They're not really fully following Christ. They're not pursuing obedience in all of life. They're present. 
but they're following other gods, the god of money, the god of popularity, and so on. And so the question is, which group are you in? Will you trust God or will you not? Will you obey Christ, which will come at a cost, and there will be a sacrifice, or will you not? And so you decide. And so the call is this, and I'm going to end with this. For the unbeliever in this passage, for the one who's not following Christ, the call is to repent. You see the end game. Jesus very clear. This is what's coming. Jesus is Lord, and that's good because he's a good and gracious Lord. And he died for you, and he died for your sin. And if you flee to the cross in faith in Christ, you can escape his judgment and receive mercy and unending grace, as Paul says in Ephesians. For the Christian this morning, listening, who has been seduced by worldly pursuits, who has been following the God of money, the God of security, the God of popularity, the God of independence, you are on the wrong side of history. You're on the wrong side of history. You're taking the easy road, which will lead to regret. And the call is to submit to Christ in all these different areas of life. And for the Christian this morning who may be lacking, who may struggle to make, to make ends meet because their priorities match what God commands, who may be going through hardships and rely on God, who others may hate and slander because you proclaim Christ in all of life, take courage. And Jesus unceasingly says, blessed are you. Blessed are you. This is not all there is. Continue to obey Christ. Continue. You will be full. You will be satisfied. Stay strong till the end. In the midst of it all, continue because you are blessed. Those who obey Christ are the ones who are blessed. Those who are not following Christ or pursuing other gods, woe to you.